There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, everything you could possibly think of, like eagles... Baldness and stars. Oh, there's three crackers, James. Yeah, I think we should do bald eagles, Sam. I think that would be be perfect. Or we could do flares, dares and bears, or mares, stairs and wares. Actually, I want to do all six of those, Uh, particularly wares, because I'm writing about shopping at the moment. So I'm very excited about that. And you may hear a little bit more about that later on. Uh, However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of solitude is in fact all about monasticism, pillars, ornamental hermits and shoes, desert islands and the Beatles? Of course it is. Or that the history of soap, yes, soap, is in fact all about hazing the British Royal Navy profanities, marketing, the Spanish flu, popular politics, freedom of speech, Speaker's Corner, and John Major's soapbox when he was electioneering. And Mm. also a little bit about the coronavirus, which is still with us, alas. It is. It is. You're probably wondering who is doing this talking, telling you all about soap and the coronavirus. Let me say he is the woodpecker of history. He's a man so genetically fine-tuned for the study of history that his woodpeckery tongue is in fact wrapped around his brain inside his skull, creating a tonguey cushion so as not to cause concussion when drumming at the great tree trunk of the past with his beak of research. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. But I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, let's just say if he were a historical tongue, he'd only be Nick Stubel, who has the world's longest tongue, which measures an impressive 10.1 centimetres or 3.97 inches from its tip to middle. Uh, when wow. his lip is top lip closed, uh, this was this this is in the Guinness Book of Records, uh, the first of October, twenty twenty. Are you one of those people who can who can touch your nose with your tongue? Uh, no, but I do read the Guinness Book of Records. Ah, so, well, you should yeah. uh, you can you can check it up. Uh, well, we haven't said who you are. It is, of course, the famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, today, you've probably worked it out. We're doing not the history of woodpeckers, though they are interesting. We're doing the history of tongues. And that is true, that woodpecker tongues are wrapped around the inside of their heads so they don't get concussion. <laughs> I, I love that. I have no fact. idea about that. No, no idea where, about that. So where do we start with the history of... Where, where do we start with the history of tongues, Sam? Um, well, uh, uh, with archaeology. I was... Um, ah. Um, mentioned some stuff about... Uh, some very ancient prehistoric pottery. Um, we talked about this in our cheese podcast and how they'd found the residue of cheese in the inside of some very prehistoric pots. And um, it, it just when I, while I was writing this, I was thinking back to that because for archaeologists, um, the tongue is actually a very important tool to help you identify the type of material that you've been lucky enough to excavate. Um, particularly earthenware, it's a type of um, type of pottery. Um, it's very sort of soft. It's porous. It's been created at a very low temperature. And the common procedure for identifying it is actually just to touch your tongue to it. And if it feels sticky, Ooh. then it's earthenware. But there are other um, the other ways of using the tongue for other types of pottery. Ironstone um, is a very interesting uh, type of ceramic. This. Um, do you know, it's I'm like, getting the image here of archaeologists going around their digs licking pots, Sam. <laughs> yes, well, they do. This is the, this is the point. So very I, important uh, archaeological tool, the time. Yeah, yeah. Ironstone ceramic is made out of clay, um, ironstone slag, bit of flint, bit of blue oxide of cobalt. And um, this is less sticky to the tongue than others, such as whiteware, which is another type of earthenware. So um, the tongue is a very important tool for archaeologists. That's how I begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was squirrelling around in the archives, as I do uh, in the day job. And for a chapter that I'm writing for my gloves book at the moment with the brilliant uh, Sue Broomhall. Hello, Sue, if you ever listen to this. Uh, but we're writing this book at the moment and I'm putting together a chapter or so on shopping and trade. And one of the things that I came across uh, in the archives was a trade card by a woman called Mary Showley uh, from the late 1760s. And I'll just read it to you. Mary Showley at the Ham and Lion, number 32 St Nicholas Lane, selleth all sorts of hams and tongues, Likewise taketh in all the above said goods to cure in the best manner and at the most reasonable rate. So we have a sort of mid-18th century shopkeeper who is selling a female shopkeeper, which is very important for the book that we're writing on gendering gloves, um, is selling tongue. And this led me to think about tongue in terms of it as a food stuff. Are you much of a tongue connoisseur, Sam? Do you like no. a tongue sandwich? no. My 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 nine year old is very adventurous. Um, when she was very young, uh, we went to we were in the south of France. I think she was about three, and we had andouillette, um, which is this sort of um, large French sausage, and you cut it open, and basically it's full of offal, so it's full of all sorts of stuff, and it reeks. But she loved it. Um, and the other day. Um, or a couple of months ago, she demanded tongue sandwiches for lunch. So we had to we had to get in uh, tongue sandwiches. But I was uh, again squirrelling uh, around in the the e archives here on on the internet and came across um, a wonderful digitised recipe book at the University of Pennsylvania in their special collections and rare books library, manuscript codex 
214, which is Catherine Cotton's recipe book, and it's dated to 1698. And in it, there is a brilliant recipe for minced pies, which includes tongue. I mean, this is very Christmassy, and we're not in, we're not at Christmas here. But I thought I'd just I'd just read it to you. We'll certainly read the first bit because it says, in order to make minced pies, take a neat's tongue. A neat is a, is a word for a cattle, some sort of bovine cattle. So take a neat's tongue, parboil it, and mince it very small. Put it. Put to it a pound of beef suet and two pounds of raisins, and the sun stoned and minced very small, a quarter of a pound of sugar, the peel of two lemons cut small, a little cloves and mace and nutmeg, a quarter of claret, a little salt mix, all this together with six or eight pipings, smallly shred, and two pounds of currants, and so it goes on. But anyway, this idea of, of boiling the tongue as a as a sort of um, as an ingredient in mince pies. It quite put you off modern mince pies, I imagine. I do love tongue. Tongue is delicious to eat. Uh, apologies to all vegetarians uh, and vegans and pescatarians. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by that. So there we are. There's a sort of there's an opening, and I'm going to go on to talk about sticking your tongue out. The meaning of that. And what else am I going to talk about? Tongue twisters. I thought I'd end with tongue Ooh. twisters. I need to sort of warm up the tongue. As I, I have the world's most difficult tongue twister for you all today. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Well, um, you were talking about people selling tongues. And I've got another uh, account of someone selling a tongue. tongue. Seller. This is also with someone called Mary Bateman, right? She's a very famous person. Uh, she's born in 1768. She becomes a servant. She's uh, from Yorkshire. And um, she uh, leaves her employment for theft and it all goes a bit downhill. Um, she becomes a, a thief. She becomes a con artist. Um, she claims she has supernatural powers. Um, she, in 1806, she created a hoax known as the Prophet Hen of Leeds, in which uh, eggs being laid by a hen were purported to predict the end times. Doomsday, um, if you will. And um, so <laughs> this egg in her possession, began to lay eggs um, uh, with the phrase Christ is coming written on each one. In 1806, it's the start of her downfall. She's approached by William and Rebecca Perigo, who believe that they've been put under a spell and they come to um, uh, Mary for some help. Mary does provide some help, but what she actually does is poison them both. And certainly she poisons Rebecca. <laughs> um, I don't know why we're uh, laughing. That's not fu- poisoning is not funny, so <laughs> it's not funny. It's, a, it's an amazing story, though. So uh, she claims she's innocent, um, but the, uh, the the authorities go around her house. They find out loads of poison. They find also a lot of personal belongings, uh, which actually belonged to William and Rebecca Perigo, who she was supposed to be helping. Um. And she is, uh, so she's rested, she's hanged in uh, March 1809. After her execution, her body is displayed in public. Uh, Strips of her skin um, are tanned into leather and sold as magic charms to ward off evil spirits. You might be guessing where I'm going here, James. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this leads us to a, a fascinating collection of curiosities it was called mr stubbs's private museum and it was sold in 1867 mr stubbs's private museum uh, was 
found it in Ripon in North Yorkshire. And the catalogue for this crazy collection of stuff still exists. Um, it became very common, this kind of uh, eccentric collecting. From the 16th century, people become obsessed with classifying, rationalising uh, the wonders and the oddities of the natural world. Lots of bizarre and mythical things. And uh, I've got a little bit of the uh, really brilliant catalogue here. Uh, miscellaneous. Number one, a brass plate from the cap of a Russian soldier killed by John Simpson of Ripon in the Crimean War. Number two, coat sleeve and cap of Patrick Reed worn by him when he committed the murder of Mr Wraith and his wife and servant girl at Mirfield. Three, swathing clothes of curious workmanship belonging to the ancestors of the Earl of Winchelsea. Four, two very curious and handsome pieces of polished paint. Five, piece of skin of Anne Barber, who was executed at York for the murder of her husband and dissected at Leeds in 1821. Number six, leaf of weeping willow from the tomb of Napoleon in St Helena. That's a result. Seven, piece of the skin of Thirtle, the murderer. Eight, polished oyster shell from India. Nine, small fossil shell from a chalk strata. Fine impression of a plant and small shell, cut and polished. Number ten, Indian arrows, nine. Number 11, engraving of the Wellington tree as it stood after the battle with the frame of the same wood and description on back of picture. Number 12, curious chain cut out of a solid piece of wood. Number 13, very curiously grown branch of a holly tree. And number 14, yes, James, you've got it. Part of the tongue of Mary Bateman, the notorious Yorkshire witch who was executed at York for murder, dissected at Leeds Infirmary about 56 years ago. So here you've got a tongue. It's a collector's item. It's something that has been purchased. It's a kind of a charm. It's linked to witchcraft. And witchcraft in the 18th and early 19th century, not when you might suspect uh, it to have come from, which is the 17th century. There you are, James. Bit of tongue purchasing love it. collection. We love witches. Witch's tongue. Brilliant. Yeah. It, and it's sort of links to our thing on cheese as well hmm. uh, we were doing the other day cheese and divination is a bit like eggs and divination and it's all tied up with witchcraft um what i want to talk about is take us in a different direction and it's about the sticking out of tongues i remember very very vividly as a young boy getting very cross with people and and sticking out tongues as a sign of rudeness and certainly in the 1950s the sticking out of tongues was a gesture that was seen to be very rude and offensive but it wasn't the only one um and i've got a sort of little collection of them here um number one uh, is to is uh, with your first and second fingers extended slightly parted jerked upwards the back of the hand facing outwards. This is, uh, in other words, flicking the V. So sticking up two fingers was a, in the 1950s among children was a very rude thing to do. Um, the second one is to um, press your nose upwards with a thumb, They're like almost like a sort of piggy nose, and then stick your tongue out. And that was devilishly rude. Uh, the third uh, was... Uh, twisting your ears or placing your thumbs in your ear holes with your fingers fluttered, uh, a gesticulation known as elephant ears. It's a sort of na 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 na, sort of like that. The uh, fourth one, and I like this one, uh, is to uh, hold your nose while you pull an imaginary toilet chain. You can see how dated this is. We're not used to chains nowadays. So we're, we have pushes or buttons or wizardry. Um, 
in the bathroom, but this was to sort of pull a, a lavatory chain and you were thinking that somebody was really smelly. And the fifth is uh, air forced through pursed lips to make a juicy noise known as a raspberry. And I can demonstrate this very well here. <laughs> That's incredibly rude. But you know, at, at, the, at the top of it is actually sticking out your tongue as a rude gesture. But that's not the only meaning of sticking out of tongues. And sticking out of tongues in popular culture, you can find it everywhere. Uh, and it has various meanings. We can... Back in 2005, uh, there's the singer Miley Cyrus was on a, an American TV show and she stuck her tongue out, which caused great sort of sensation about what was she meaning with this? And, you know, was it sort of, you know, flirty or, you know, with sexual connotations? And probably all of that is it. But it's also probably a PR stunt in order to sort of get in the headlines. Uh, it's an em emoticon nowadays to stick out the tongue, uh, which can be mocking and can be... Um, can be telling somebody that basically you know uh, go away i'm i'm not interested in what you in what you say also uh, you can see other people in popular culture sticking out their tongues take for example the rolling stones or gene simmons in the band the kiss or who can forget albert einstein's famous image of himself sticking out his tongue which completely undercuts in a very whimsical way this idea of this very famous scientist who is almost synonymous with uber intelligence. So there are all sorts of ways of, of all sorts of meanings associated with sticking out tongues, whether it's being cute, whether it's flirty, whether it's about silliness, uh, whether it's about distaste or disgust, whether you're suggesting that you're nervous, whether you're angry that you disagree with people. And Historically, there are two very different examples that I'd like to end with to talk about here. The first is the Tibetans ticking out, sticking out their tongues, and that contrasts with Maoris sticking out their tongues. Now, Tibetans sticking out their tongues was represented in the Brad Pitt movie, Seven Years in Tibet. You've probably seen, seen this, Sam. It's a brilliant film. And the Brad Pitt character... You know, when he's on his travels, comes across a group of Tibetans who stick out their tongues. And, you know, of course, for him visiting, he doesn't really know what this, you know, what this means. But it actually has a very long tradition. And it dates back to the 19th century Tibetan king, Lang Dharma, who was known as a real tyrant, a really sort of um, cruel king. And he had a black tongue. Uh, and as Buddhists, uh, Tibetans believe in reincarnation and they were worried that this evil king this you know tyrannical king would come back it would be reincarnated and so the telltale sign would be that somebody had a black tongue so the idea was that you know in order to prove who you were when you first met somebody you needed to stick out your tongue to prove that you were not lang dharma the evil 19th century tibetan king and this feeds into popular practice and so it becomes a, a greeting and is now a sort of traditional greeting among Tibetans, they stick out their tongues. So it's actually a gesture that evolves into a sign of respect. It's rather like you know, shaking shaking hands or, or waving hello to somebody or doing a high five or a fist bump in a much more sort of informal way. Now, this is versus the Maori use of the tongue and the Maori sticking out of the tongue in the haka 
which is a ceremonial dance or challenge in Maori culture, very famously nowadays danced before uh, a rugby match by the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby union team, ever since uh, the early 20th century, I think. I think it's dated back to 1905, my research notes are telling me. And so the idea here is that this is often associated with traditional battle preparations. There are various sorts of hackers, but particularly the battle ones that involve that involve men in particular and warriors. There are hacker uh, variations of the hacker that will involve men and women, but this this in particular the battle preparation involves them sort of dancing around, slapping their hands against the body, stomping the feet, various sort of, you know, wild actions, chanted words, you know, grunts and sort of really quite ferocious stuff. And also the tongue being sort of stuck out and waggled around in a really terrifying way. And one of the earliest European witnesses to this um, was Joseph Banks, a man called Joseph Banks, who accompanied Captain James Cook on the first voyage to New Zealand in 1769. And he records, The war song and dance consists of various contortions of the limbs, during which the tongue is frequently thrust out incredibly far, and the orbits of the eyes enlarged so much that a circle of white is distinctly seen around the iris. In short, nothing is omitted which can render a human shape frightful and deformed which I suppose they think terrible. One of the funniest uh, viral videos that I've seen uh, recently was a video of a, a little Maori baby who was probably just about able to to walk and he was being taught the hacker uh, and it's the most hilarious thing sort of and but he's got it he's got it sort of rocking around on his feet and his tongue sticking out really 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 brilliant so there we are sticking out tongues I like that. I like that a lot. I like the Joseph Banks stuff. It's fascinating. Always reading, reading his diaries. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, I, I, not long ago, um, while I was able to, I, I went up to London. And I actually ended up going to the London Dungeon for the first time with my mm. daughter. Uh, it was very funny. Uh, also very frightening and um there was a the the torture bit of the london dungeon they've got all sorts of gruesome equipment and one of which is uh it's a a device for tearing the tongue or or removing the tongue it was massively unpleasant and it really made me wonder what was going on here because um is it really was it really a, a kind of a torture to remove someone's tongue surely you're trying to get them to confess and if they can't speak then uh, that doesn't really help you so it did really make me wonder about the, uh, the the truth of the business I suppose you can sign a confession James can't you in Guy Fawkes's style uh, rather than having to um, quite, actually use quite use terrifying your, the thought of having your tongue. your tongue ripped out though it absolutely is but it did make me think about what exactly was going on there and it's it is I think quite interesting because what you're you've got to struggle here haven't you between 
well, a sort of over people's use of language. I mean, literally with their tongue. Um, it's interesting that the, you know the word for language across the world is also is also tongue. But what you're doing here is you've got a, um, you're removing not just removing a tongue, you're removing language. You're you're kind of exiling the the victim of torture from from their community of, of speech, from the, the people that they uh, would normally be able to talk to, to identify with. So there's a there's a kind of a, a much broader impact of removing someone's tongue than simply just you know the, the torturer literally possessing uh, possessing the tongue possessing the ability of the victim being able to um, to speak. Um, I think also it's worth realizing that not only are they then cut off from communication um, with their established communities, the, the way they identified themselves, their circles of ident- identification, um, the victim becomes very isolated. Also, I suppose, al- almost less than human. Um, you know, do consider that language is the most powerful of human tools of them all. And also there's a religious aspect to this. How do you go to heaven in Christianity? Well, you do it by prayer. You do it with confession as well. Um, All very important parts of speech. Um, We do know that this was used as a punishment in 5th century India um, for people who um, were non-Aryans, a a means of identifying yourself religiously, culturally and linguistically. It was used in Mongolia and Persia against Christian missionaries uh, in the 9th and 10th centuries. In 13th century Spain and Florence, it was used against those who spoke out against powerful politicians and governors. And in medieval Europe, it was used... um, as a punishment for defamation and for slander. The evidence is quite interesting how you actually find out about it. There's a, an account uh, from Cologne in 50, 1757, which includes expenses for a torturer, uh, item 29, for cutting out the tongue entirely or part of it, and afterwards for burning the mouth with a red-hot iron. That would cost you five Reichstahler. Uh, item 31, for nailing to the gallows a cut-off tongue or a chopped-off hand. That was much cheaper, James. That was just one Reichstahler. <laughs> so there is evidence here. But one which I found out really interesting, a particular example, was um, to do with a woman. Um, and it's a Roman account. And there's a whole history of, of women without tongues, women having their tongues removed, which is culturally, historically significant in its own way. This comes from a book called The Life of Pythagoras by a guy called Lamblicus. Um, he was writing around 245 to, to 300, we'll say 300. He was a Syrian, he was from Arab origin, he's the biographer of Pythagoras, and he includes an account which describes um, what happens to the wife of a soldier in Greece in the 6th century BC. Dionysius, therefore, being astonished at this answer, ordered him to be forcibly taken away, but commanded his wife, Timica, to be tortured. For he thought that as she was a woman, pregnant and deprived of her husband, she would easily tell him what he wanted to know through fear of the torments. The heroic woman, however, grinding her tongue with her teeth, bit it off and spat it at the tyrant, evincing by this that, though her sex being vanquished by the torments, might be compelled to disclose something which ought to be concealed in silence, yet by the member subservient to the development of it should be entirely cut off. 
Now, if you reread that and think about it, what the message of this essentially is that as a woman in 6th century BC, it's easier or better to bite your own tongue off than it is to resist the the inability of chatting and and um, and giving divulging information which was so vanquished as a word. It was so easily vanquished. So she'd rather tear her own tongue out than be tortured, not because she wants to minimise her pain, because she, as a woman, doesn't trust herself to remain silent. And obviously, this is written by a man. <laughs> so what we've got here is a, is a man um, writing about what he believes to be a, a kind of moral deficit in women, but explained through um, uh, a fairly gruesome story in which she bites off her own tongue. Goodness me, that reminds me of um, Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, which we wrote about in our little book on the on the Romans, um, and it's the tale of the tragic tale or myth of Philomela, uh, who's a sort of royal daughter of one of the kings of Athens who is raped by King Tyrius of Thrace and she's then mutilated, has her tongue cut out so that she can't speak about her crime and what she does is she then uses weaving, the needlework in order to communicate the horrors that have been perpetrated upon her and it's described in Ovid's long Latin narrative poem so her sister gets hold of this stitched testimony and finds out what has what has happened before her and then um, seeks revenge uh, for it. So, um, yes, devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, having your tongue cut out in order to mm. stop you talking about a crime that's been perpetuated on you. Um, Not terrible. Uh, but I have something a little more, uh, a little more upbeat, a little more jovial to end with, which is the history of tongue twisters. Um, and tongue twisters as a child were always one of my favourite things. And I think one of the things about them is that they you can play them as a word game. And I remember my girls at the moment, you know, play tongue twisters and try and do the most difficult tongue twisters and, and speak tongue twisters or sing tongue twisters for as long as they can. But it's also associated with elocution. So it's, it's in order to improve pronunciation. And the idea is that you put particular letters or phonemes together, particular sounds, like particularly the sh and the s, and you combine different alternating patterns that go backwards and forwards. And it's a way of of exercising the tongue. And one of the earliest um, textbooks on this uh, comes from 1878, and it's entitled uh, a book, Practical Elocution, by the wonderfully named J.W. Shoemaker, uh, who uh, in chapter 17 uh, has a, a, the title Recreations in Articulation. To the teacher, while many of the exercises given under Recreations in Articulation may create amusement in a class, a higher motive than amusement has prompted their insertion. In other words, correct pronunciation. Practice is here afforded in nearly every form of difficult articulation. So here we are. I've got some for you. Did you say a notion or an ocean? Bring me some ice, not some mice. Thou laidst down and slept. A big black bug bit a big black bear. And number five. It will pain nobody if the sad daughter regain neither rope. 
and so it goes on this is this is a good one um thou bridlest thy tongue wreathedest thy lips with smiles imprisonedest thy wrath and truckledest thy to thine enemy's power it's terrible terribly difficult to do now do you want to know the world's most difficult tongue twister yes excellent this was developed in 2013 by some very clever researchers at MIT who took it to a conference, a conference called the 166th Meeting of the Acoustical Society of America. And they were trying to sort of work out how speech patterns worked psychologically. So they get they get a sort of series of, um, of volunteers uh, to try out these tongue twisters. And the, the most difficult tongue twister that they came up with was... Pad kid, poured curd, pulled cod. Pad kid, poured curd, pulled, pulled cod. <laughs> it's very difficult, isn't it? And that that replaced uh, the the previous one in the Guinness Book of Records was the sixth sick shakes sixth sheep's sick. Can you do that one? <laughs> six, six sheeps. I know. Six That's much harder than the other sick. one, isn't it? It isn't it much, but pad kid poured curd pulled cod. Uh, actually, that's much. The sixth six sheeps. Six pad kid poured sick. curd pulled. I oh, know. Aren't they difficult? But this is, it, it, it is part of it is part of the history of elocution, but also it's part of childhood. Oh, yeah. It's part of childhood fun. Uh, and the following in the 1950s uh, were very much in vogue, so really popular. A tutor who tooted the flute tried to tutor two tutors to toot. Said the two to the tutor, it is harder to toot or two tutors to tutors to toot. <laughs> so I'm messing that up already. There's no need to light a nightlight on a nightlight like tonight. For a nightlight's a slight light on a night like tonight. Oh, I love that one. Um, a woman to her son did utter, Go, my son, and shut the shutter. The shutter shut, the son did utter. I cannot shut it any shutter. But also it's about it's about different... One of the things that I think was, makes these so intriguing for children is the way in which they are amazed that one word has... You know, more than one meaning. So I've got a couple of examples here from the 1940s in Britain. Your Bob owes our Bob a Bob. If your Bob doesn't give our Bob the Bob your Bob owes our Bob, our Bob will give your Bob a Bob in the eye. <laughs> and here's another one here. Our Dickie wants to know if your Dickie will lend our Dickie your Dickie's Dickie bow. If your Dickie won't lend our Dickie your Dickie's Dickie bow, then our Dickie won't lend your Dickie our Dickie's Dickie bow when our Dickie has a Dickie bow. Very good. Or, <clears throat> the last one here. Of all the felt I ever felt, I never felt a piece of felt which felt the same as that felt felt when I first felt the felt of that felt hat. There we are. That that ends that ends the lesson today. Uh, tongue twisters. <coughs> you should all go one. out That's and great. practice. It's very good. You should all go out and practice um, your uh, for your elocution, I think. Yeah, um, it does really um, bring to mind kind of Victorian schoolrooms, 1850s, 1860s, people being taught to speak proper-like. Um, exactly. I enjoyed the history of tongues, James. That was tremendous. Uh, guys, if you want more, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. 
And I am at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over Instagram and Facebook, so you can follow us there. And we have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find out everything that we have been doing. We also have a Patreon page. Uh, anything that you can give us during these difficult times to keep these homeschooling shows going and the regular podcasts to entertain you during lockdown would be very much appreciated. Absolutely. That That's all for now, guys. We're back with... Oh, next week it's Hugs, Snakes, uh, Elephants and Buttons. Is that correct, James? Yes. And then and then I'm already starting to compile some <laughs> for the week after. I, think, I thought we could do wine. Well, ooh, nice. Okay. Well, that's all coming your way, guys. Thank you so much for listening once again. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.